Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Welcome to Protect and Serve, the podcast that delves into the incredible lives of police officers across the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm your host, Oliver Lawrence, and together we will embark on a journey to explore the untold stories of those who dedicated their lives to protecting and serving their communities. You may be sitting there wondering why I chose to start this podcast. Well, let me share with you a little bit about myself. I served as a uniformed officer for over a decade. During my time, I witnessed firsthand the immense sacrifices that officers make daily. From confronting dangerous situations to offering a helping hand, their dedication is unwavering. These experiences left a profound impact on me, even after I hung up my uniform. I created the podcast to shed light on the extraordinary work of police officers, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the globe. Each episode will feature riveting interviews with these brave men and women, offering you a glimpse into the challenges they faced, the triumphs they celebrated, and the personal journeys that brought them to this noble profession. But it's not just about the heroic moments, it's about the individuals behind the uniforms. We'll explore their passions, their motivations, and their unwavering commitment to protecting and serving their communities. This podcast isn't about promoting any particular agenda or glossing over the often complex nature of policing. Instead, it's a platform to celebrate the diverse perspectives and experiences that exist within the law enforcement community. We will address the tough questions, engage in honest and courageous conversations, seeking to understand the myriad of roles and responsibilities that come with being a police officer. Whether you're a fellow officer, someone aspiring to join the police, or a curious listener seeking to gain insight into the lives of those who wear the uniform, Protect and Serve has something for everyone. So join me as we embark on this eye-opening journey, sharing stories that will inspire, enlighten, bring a tear to the eye, and create a better understanding of the dedication and sacrifices police officers make to keep us safe. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Together, we'll explore the heart and soul of those who proudly protect and serve. Well, welcome to another episode in Series 3. This will be Episode 2 of the Protect and Serve podcast. Now, the start of my episodes every week, uh, you'll hear me talk about my objectives of this podcast, and that is to set out to support two incredible organisations which are having... A massive impact outside of policing and 
They only have the impact they have because of the incredible people that sit behind them. They are the charities or the organisations of Trojan Wellbeing and PTSD 999. This evening, I'm incredibly honoured to be joined for episode two, the founder and the champion of Trojan Wellbeing, former retired Metropolitan Police Officer and GMP Officer, Steve Lobby Thornton. Lobby, welcome to the podcast this evening. How are you? Oh, good day, Ollie. Hey, I'm not too bad. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's an honour to be here with the cast of the people you've had on the show before, and I'm honoured to be on that list. No, listen, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. As I say, both uh, Trojan Wellbeing and PTSD 99 are doing some incredible work, which we'll talk about a little bit later on in the show, because obviously it's a massive part of your life now uh, and has had a huge impact on a number of officers' lives that are going through difficult times and need a bit of extra support. So we'll come on to that shortly. But... Like every good detective at the start of my shows, I want to wind back the clock in your policing career. We're going back to 1982, where you joined the, the Met Police as a cadet. And I want to ask you, was policing something you'd always aspired to get involved in, or was it something you sort of fell into? Uh, I, I suppose I really fell into it. I mean, my career path was going to be the military. That's where my family, or my, my old man was uh, ex-military. Um, I only really joined the police because it was to impress a girlfriend at the time who was in the voluntary police cadets in the Sussex police. Um, <laughs> so I was rejected by Sussex police and they said, well, go up the road and apply for the Met. They'll take anyone. Uh, and they did. You know, and I managed to get into the, uh, the, the police cadets, which when, when I think back, it was an amazing experience. I couldn't believe I got paired to sort of, you know, canoe, climb mountains and, and sort of enjoy myself. You know, it's uh, it a fantastic time now. Looking back on it, you know, it's uh, it's a shame they don't do it anymore because it was a good foundation for well, the springboard for the rest of the career, really. Was it a disciplined environment back in 1982? Because one of the sort of um, challenges at the moment is we're sort of comparing sort of the training expectations today as sort of the training years of you know, the training expectations of yesteryear, you know, some time, you know, 1982 is nearly, what, 38, 39 years ago now. Um, what was your experience in terms of the discipline and the standards that were expected of you as a young cadet? Uh, yeah, it was very disciplined. Uh, I mean, I, I was used used to a certain amount of discipline with having, you know, an old man who's ex-military, but, uh, yeah, the discipline at the time in 1982 was uh, was a bit of a culture shock for me. You know, I'd, I'd had my hair cut, uh, being a heavy rocker in the time, you know, I had my hair cut, it was just above me, uh, my shoulders, and uh, I got there, and I was called a hippie, and I had to go and get it cut again. Um, so that was my first sort of introduction to sort of things are going to be slightly changed. So, yeah, we had to, you know, everything was pressed, you know, the uniform was pressed, you had to look after stuff, you have to sort of bowl your boots, parades, marching, uh, and standing in the snow holding logs and never sort of worked out why that was part of the discipline, but I'm sure someone got some fun out of watching a lot of cadets stood sort of shivering in the snow holding the log up in the air. But, uh, yeah, it was it was interesting time, certainly sort of shared to me and I suppose in a way built resilience um, for what I was about to face. You know, it was, um, it was a good foundation without doubt. And if there were occasions where you, you, you hadn't, Bulled your boots well enough for you, 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 your, your discipline did fall out of line. What were sort of ramifications of that? Was it additional push ups? Was it a late night sort of marching drill, you know, parade? What was, what are sort of the, so what, what encouraged you to make sure that you kind of followed the rules and expectations of your skippers? 
Well, not only was it peer pressure, you were letting down, because uh, the Metropolitan Police cadets were broken up under different houses. So you had men fielding uh, and a couple of others that were insignificant because obviously I was man house and that was a man house within the cadets. Um, so you were letting the house down as well. You know, we had standards. Um, so not only would you sort of, you know, feel the wrath of the instructional staff, you'd also get the wrath of the senior cadets as well. So, you know, you had that peer pressure as well. Um, a bit like the military model, really. You know, if you if you sort of let the uh, the team down, then the team get punished as well as yourself. So you you start to bond together as a team. So that that's where the discipline started. Um, you know, you get the early morning parades, you get the sort of you know the the care runs and all the other sort of punishment that goes with it. You know, it was the fittest I've ever been. Um, you know, uh, when going back to sort of you know those times now. So 1983 is uh, the period where you joined the regulars, and that was sort of like the full-time training. And I, I'm also I'm always intrigued as to how people manage not only the workload in terms of understanding the operational requirements of of the office of constable, but equally the theoretical challenges. Because back in the sort of early 80s and, and then the 90s, and even into the early 2000s academia wasn't really a significant component of being able to get in is there's more of an emphasis placed on it today in terms of sort of degree entry candidates and mm. and you know good cops had good street knowledge good street cred and and, and very good common sense how, how was your sort of take on sort of getting to grips with legislation and policy and procedure and everything that was required of you for when you graduated i, I think because of the the actual model going back to the cadet model um, you're actually sort of passed it to a, a police station as a, as a cadet. So you actually joined a working relief. So, I mean, you really saw um, how sort of, you know, evidence was gathered, I suppose, and also the consequences if you didn't gather the evidence. So you were given that sort of introduction at a very early stage. So when you're actually put into training school, it, it wasn't just theory. You'd actually sort of witnessed it you know, on, a, on a practical level as well, so you could see the benefits of it. And I suppose you know you really understood the, you know, the relevance of it. You know, but only mind, I was eighteen and a half when I went to uh, police training college. You know, and you you stand alongside ex-military guys who've got some sort of you know, life experience, as long with you know, other sort of mature students, and they're looking at this sort of like spotty face cadet. Uh, or ex-cadet stood next to me thinking, well, what life experience have, have you had, you know? And I dealt with sudden deaths. I'd, I'd done fights and even picked up my first complaint as a police cadet uh, because of the relief I was working on. You know, so I was a proper sort of, you know, um, into the fire, really, in sort of learning sort of, you know, that you know, if you're going to put yourself out there, you're going to get a complaint. You know, it's... Uh, so, yeah, the, the theory side of things, you know, um, I'm, I'm by no means, uh, you know, uh, academic, so I, I, I did. You know, I struggled with the sort of legislation side of things, but I think what got me through was I, I'd seen it sort of in its practical application out in the streets. So that was where the interest was, and and the, and the desire that you know I wanted to be a police officer. So you you push yourself through, and you get the help from the other people as well. To and the staff were sort of you know wanted you to get through as well, so they, you know, they would help you to. The, the, the graduation is always um, a big occasion, and and back in the eighties, obviously you're having people graduate almost weekly. You know, from from all accounts, back in that period, there you'd have forty new recruits turning up every week, so you'd have forty leaving. So it's a constant cycle. Graduations, obviously, in front of chief superintendents, assistant commissioners, and at times commissioners. What was that day like 
for you? Is it the fond memories of having family and friends there watching you pass out, having undertaken this period of training, which is, you know, undoubtedly quite intense? Oh, yeah, I mean, we've had, I mean, you know, having your parents turn up, you know, uh, they were very proud of you. I mean, I think, you know, I was surprised that I actually elevated myself to that level, really, and, and got through the training, you know, it's... Uh, Let's just say, I mean, it was a very fine line that uh, our our family uh, sort of you know, walked, and you know, I had a good understanding of what the criminal fraternity were like, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> uh, and I still don't get on with my brother, so uh, <laughs> there's quite, quite an interesting tale there. But uh, yeah, my, my, well, after after graduation, one of my first jobs was actually to drop a change of clothing off for him at uh, Sutton Police Station, where he'd been arrested for burglary. So you know, it uh, just goes to show, doesn't it? Well, it's, you know, it's an interesting one. I obviously don't expect to go into too much detail, but how do you manage that, you know, in terms of, because not every family dynamic is perfect. You know, families are very complex. People take many different directions in life. And for those of us that choose a vocation in policing, you can often become quite conflicted very quickly with the activities of both friends and family that go on around you. And sometimes you can lose friends because of this vocation because of people actually no longer trust you. And if you go to the pub, you're going to be watching how much I drink. Mm. For you, obviously, sort of looking back on, obviously, relationships, how did they affect you and, and how were you able to get through them? Uh, yeah, and, yeah, fa- family was uh, was one one main issue. Obviously, you know, my relationship with my brother uh, was, was very sort of strained, uh, to say the least. Um, but, yeah, I think anyone joining the police will say that their friendship circle does sort of uh, become a lot smaller once you sort of, you know, wear the cloth. Um and uh, it, and it's it's one of the things that we're keen to try and and push with the sort of well-being side of things that you have a friendship circle that are outside the police, which is very difficult to do really because mm. uh, of the social sort of you know uh, anti-social shifts you do. You can't just turn up at sort of events when people want you to turn up, so it's very difficult to have a a mixed friendship circle because of the role you perform. So we do sort of tend to sort of gravitate towards other colleagues within the police don't we all or people of similar sort of um occupations nurses and and paramedics and firefighters you know it's, it's not no surprise that you know we are sort of quite tightly bonded because of the natural work we do so 1983 you graduate from from hendon now one of the the most one of the a particularly tense period during any training um period at, at hendon is the allocations of where you're going to be posted because you know people want to be in the thick of it they want to be in central london they want to be in leicester square they want to be able to to get a feel of sort of the action from a public order perspective make sure they've got exposure to a bit of everything you headed off to battersea where you would spend the next 12 years of your policing career what was your what was your reaction to being posted out to battersea in terms of was it somewhere you wanted to go you're excited to go there because obviously you spent a long time there so you must have fallen in love with the area <laughs> well, well, funnily enough, that was a station I was seconded to when I was a police cadet. Uh, so <laughs> when I put down my sort of you know wishes, because all my family lived um, south on the on the coast in Eastbourne, so you wanted South London, you know, just to be able to sort of get down back down to see your parents and stuff. So I put mainly sort of South London sort of divisions, and, and Battersea was one of them because I've been there before. So uh, having been told I'm going to Battersea. I turn up at uh, Battersea with, uh, as a police officer now, and uh, I'm actually put on the same relief I was on when I was a, a police cadet. So, you know, it, it's, uh, 
in one in one way it was a good thing I knew a lot of the faces on another thing uh, another sort of band it was quite difficult because you know you were still known as a gadget you know and uh, and t-boy <laughs> um, you know which is a role of many sort of probationers but you know it uh, but you know, I enjoyed it and it was a fantastic hard working relief um, you know and really you know you got to cut your teeth I mean Battersea uh, for those that don't know it is on the sort of outskirts of Clapham and Brixton um, so you take all the overflow from that, but you also get the sort of the money from sort of Chelsea. So we've got all the sort of, you know, posh apartments around Battersea Park, you know, which are in the millions. And then across the road, you've got the big council estates, you know, where there's, you know, uh, where you, you have all, all the issues. And so crime was quite high. Uh, and, you know, you dealt with most things on, on that ground. So it was a good ground to sort of learn your trade, really. What, what was, you know, the, the first couple of years, obviously you'd had this unique experience as a cadet. You know, as you said, you'd, you'd, you'd been to fights, you'd backed up, you know, police officers in this cadet role and, and, and you'd experienced so much. Was, as a regular, going in full-time, working those days, afternoons and late turns, was there, was there a period in those two years where you were faced with sort of difficult challenges, you know, to, you know complex domestic violence incidences, whereas a young 18, 19-year-old, you're having to try and resolve... You know, marriage conflicts, which at, at 18, 19 years, what, what, 19 years of age, what do we know about sort of marriage conflicts? Mm-hmm. And then you've got, for instance, sudden deaths, which you're having to deal with. What, what was that exposure like? And how were you able to sort of manage the challenges and expectations placed upon you? Uh, I think uh, back in that day, stuff we, we, we took for granted really was the, the peer support from the relief. Um, you know, you, if you were involved in quite a traumatic incident, uh, I mean, on Battis's ground, we had, we had um, the murder of a, a baby, uh, Leonie Brown, uh, who was found murdered in a, in a sort of you know, basement of one of these sort of blocks of flats on the estate. An elderly female in one of the posh apartments around Battis Park, where she'd been stabbed over 72 times with a screwdriver uh, by on the person who she befriended, you know. But initially, it was put up as a sudden death, um, you know, and. Uh, having to break the door down uh, and you come across that and you can see that, you know, this is more than just a sudden death. It was sort of a bit of a eye opener. Then uh, you call down the CID and uh, yeah, so first murder inquiry was, you know, one of my first sudden deaths that I was sent to. And and, and that's, and, you know, that's what I was going to say is the important thing is your colleagues being able to to have refs with them and to be able to talk about these things and to debrief informally. And those are some of the things, you know, police canteens and that and it's a word often used sort of the canteen culture of being able to have sort of discussions and sort of those area car drivers having those deep conversations to understand how you're traveling and 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 to ask you questions and to debrief and those are sort of things that we see today that have been I suppose almost eroded really you know like people debrief by themselves they go and get their food elsewhere you you very rarely see cops coming together because the, the role that they do today is so intense going from job to job to job there isn't that opportunity to share those experiences at the best of times so it's um it's it's certainly a challenge one person i spoke to last year and i, I wanted to um to bring this up because uh, i'm sure he's got many people to thank for for his achievements establishing himself as a probationer in, in battersea was was neil basu who who brought you up uh, during his podcast and uh, i think he was a probationer under you at battersea it must have been interesting to see his progression through the ranks uh, to the point where he got to deputy assistant commissioner and obviously leading counter-terrorism for a while. 
Yeah, yeah. Neil, Neil was sort of, uh, yeah, you, you get certain perversions that turn up or certain officers turn up at, at Nick and, and you know there's something sort of about them. Um, I mean, not only that, he was a good batsman as well. So he was very popular because, you know, he, he played for the uh, Batsy cricket side, which is, you know, the same. Uh, <laughs> I played cricket as well. We dragged him away on tour and uh, sort of corrupted him. Uh, and, you know, I don't think he ever recovered since. Um, but yeah, Neil, Neil was a, a top bloke and uh, I think, you know, he himself was saying, you know, the ground and he got at Battersea was a, a good foundation for his, his career. Uh, you know, hard working guys and girls at the, at the Nick. Uh, and, and just the sort of diversity of, of jobs that you encountered was a real sort of eye on as to the, the, the police work uh, and what was available at that for you. So outside of the three years that you did at Greater Manchester Police at, at working in, in Moss Side, is your, your career has been focused around firearms and that significant uh, higher level of response and cordon and containment and dealing with high-risk situations often where firearms are used or there's a threat of firearms or terrorism-related matters. And so after you've done your 12 years at Battersea, between 1995 and 1999, you move into SO19, which everybody equates with, you know, um, at that time it may have been uh, a state vehicles driven around by three officers armed to the hilt, able to deal with many different situations that are presented to them. At what point in your early part of your career did you get a flavour and an exposure to that environment that you felt that you would be well suited to? Uh, well, well, prior to going to 19, we, uh, we had um, divisional shots. Um, so you, you would be best at uh, the police station and you'd be one of the guys who, uh, if anything happened, you, you could be called back to the police station to buck out a gun. Um, and during the sort of your heightened sort of IRA campaign, we had quite a high-risk target on our ground. So well, we, we required divisional shots um, to go and protect the address. So that really introduced me to sort of, you know, the people up at sort of SO19 and uh, and that's really where you got the feel for this is something I want to be involved in. Um, and then we had the unfortunate incident with uh, Pat Dunn being murdered on Clapham's ground, which was really sort of the formation of the armed response vehicles. Um, and, you know, once, once that had happened uh, and once we start to deal with firearms incidents, you know, and you're listen, lifting the cordon tape for these guys and girls to come through to deal with a firearms incident, you think, well, I want to be that person going underneath that yeah. tape to go and do this, you know, because... It's, it's just, just it was just in my blood, really. Um, so once I got into sort of uh, nineteen and and some of the jobs we got involved with, it was just uh, another level. Um, I mean, to the point where we even got in. Well, I even got involved with um, uh, one of the biggest sort of um, anti-terrorist sort of jobs that was ongoing at the time. Again, at IRA terror cell, um, Optinitus, which you know. There was months and months had gone into sort of the lead up to this sort of final bit before we got involved. Uh, and I was supporting one of the specialist firearms officers teams um, only because I was uh, a trained uh, HGV driver. Uh, my role was to drive a skip wagon to put it across the front of a, the removal wagon that was, was going to be packed full of homemade explosives that they'd been storing at Hornsey. Um, and we were going to do an attack on, on the wagon. It wasn't until uh, one of these sort of military guys uh, 
went into the storage unit and did a recce on the actual explosives and said, you know, they're so unstable um, that if you were to do that tactic, you'd probably lose half of Hornsey, probably improve the place. But, uh, yeah, so if you <laughs> used to use that tactic of uh, putting a block in and attacking the removal wagon, it wouldn't end very well. So uh, we had to rethink that one. Um, and as a result, um, you know, that's when we, uh, the... Uh, raids were done on the various addresses and I think it was the first time a IRA suspect had been shot on the mainland uh, UK by by British police. You know, we, we often talk about, you know, I, 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 you know, I describe police officers as uh, ordinary people doing extraordinary work and I was corrected again by Neil Basu last year and I think he quite, he, 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 he articulated quite well, it's, it, we're, extra, we're extraordinary people doing extraordinary work and, and and that is so true and, and you're know, running at the danger whilst everybody is running in the opposite direction and and it couldn't be more so for the frontline armed response officers who are really dealing with some of the most challenging and dangerous incidents. What's the skill set required of those officers like yourself selected into those positions and what are the challenges and the training you're put through to make sure that you are the right person for the job? That's, that's, a, that's a million dollar question. You know, having been responsible for putting together training uh, for, for new AAV officers and, and firearms officers, I think you, you try and make it as realistic as possible. Um, because I think we all sort of question ourselves, you know, how would we react under certain circumstances? You know, if I was faced in that sort of, you know, life or death situation, would I you know, have the sort of, you know, presence of mind to sort of, you know, actually squeeze that trigger, you know, and it's, it's a big question. Uh, and a lot of people that have come on the courses uh, and have found that, you know, it's not it's not for them, you know, and, it, and they've made that, you know, a courageous decision, really. When you think about, you know, the environment, you know, the macho environment um, that was around sort of firearms and probably still is, uh, to, to be to be honest, you know, to make that decision that, uh, you know, firearms isn't for me, I couldn't sort of pull that trigger. That's quite a big decision to make. So, you know, you try and make the, the training as realistic as possible. It's not just about being the fittest person, but, you know, you need that mental fitness as well, which, um, you know, we try to sort of, make sure it comes through in the actual uh, practical, um, tactical training. I mean, it's all right being a good shot and being able to sort of like, you know, put together a good grouping, but can you do that under pressure? Uh, you know, and a lot of people have been found wanting, uh, despite the fact, you know, they, they may have been a superb shot. You know, when, when you apply a bit of pressure, um, all that goes out the window. I would imagine that one of the biggest skill sets of any member of that team or of any team really but specifically in that area would be the ability to, to be part and to be a team player to follow instructions to support and make sure you're backing up your buddies because they you know you've got their back they've got yours and this is the, this is incredibly serious at the at the pointy end of dealing with serious risk teamwork's got to be a massive factor i assume uh, without doubt, I mean, if you're going through a door you want to you want to feel confident that the person who who's on your back is it, going to be there for you uh, and, you know, and they're going to sort of protect you because it, it's a very, it's a very lonely place walking into that room as uh, being number one in the room. You're hoping your number two is there behind you and is doing what they're meant to be doing. Um, so if you're not part of that team, um, <laughs> the, the debris following sort of jobs uh, were very, 
hot debriefs and, and, and quite volatile. And it was uh, it wasn't a place for sort of holding back. You know, if there's problems, they needed to be ironed out because you know if you let them fester, then that would completely destroy the team dynamics. And I've seen your know, very good teams sort of be completely destroyed by you know the inactions of certain people on on a on a stick. Uh, not not doing what they, what they should have done, you know, and it's uh, so it, it, that was a vital part of uh, of teamwork was you know being upfront and honest and being able to take that criticism as well because you know, it's uh, it can be quite sort of um, damaging. One of the things that I think would probably fascinate some of my listeners that aren't from a policing background is that weapons and tactics have evolved so much in terms of the uh, capabilities that police now have in terms of the different um, tactical options they have. One of those, for instance, would be conducted energy weapons or as a taser as we know it. What sort of weaponry were you armed with back in the 90s? What would you generally be going out on the road with? It was quite interesting. When, when, when you sort of reflect back on what, what it was like on, on the first days on the cars, you know, we wouldn't even be wearing body armour. Um, and the first day of these had the sort of weapons unloaded and you know, they'd ask, had to ask for permission to load the weapons, you know, go from Trojan Alpha to Trojan Delta. Um, you know, when I went onto the, the cars, you know, we were carrying the, uh, the Glocks at that time. Um, the original um, AOVs had Smith & Wesson's revolvers. So, you know, it was a massive step up to sort of, you know, having a, a semi-automatic and the, and the MP5. Uh, which were our main sort of service weapons, and we did have the other sort of bits of kit that uh, you know the, the beat bobbies would have, you know, with the ASP uh, and um, you know, CS um, spray was in then as well. So we'd be carrying them, although many firearms officers didn't carry their gas because you know it's the last thing you want to be spraying around when you've got a lot of people with firearms because you not only do you incapacitate the person you're spraying at, but uh, mm. nine times out of ten it's the people surrounded as well. So it's. Uh, pretty ineffective really as a as a sort of restraint tool for us so we talk about this brief stint up in greater manchester police you moved up there between 1999 and 2002 what was it like that brief sort of three years in gmp working at moss side what were some of the biggest differences that you noticed between the met and gmp which is i think arguably the second largest force in the country, second largest budget outside the Met. What was it like working up there? Was there was there a lot of differences? <laughs> it, it was a, a massive culture shock. I mean, I probably didn't do myself any favours by transferring from a specialist department uh, back up to sort of, you know, going back out of the beach again. Um, but it was like going back 10 years, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, it, I knew the writing was on the wall. My very first day in GMP, when I was sat at the HQ, when there's about 25 other transferees there from all over the country. And um, the, the sergeant had read out all the names on the list and my name didn't appear. So I put my hand up and said, uh, you've not read my name out. You don't tell me what station I'm going to. And he said, what's your name? I said, oh, Steve Thornton. He said, well, where are you from? I said, from the Met. He went, well, you're going to Moss Side. Everyone from Moss Side. Uh, everyone from the Met goes to Moss Side. So I thought, well, that's going to be interesting. Um, so I turned up at uh, Moss Side. Um, GMP, in the sort of you know, usual vindictive way, decided they weren't going to recognise any of my sort of skills that I brought up when we advanced driving and firearms. They actually sort of said, you know, I'm keen to sort of join the uh, the firearms unit and utilise all the skills I've got. And I was quite um, quickly told that you'd be put on a two-year waiting list like everyone else. And uh, they've removed my advanced driving ticket 
the traffic officer who took me out on my check drive said, oh, you benefit from a, a one-week sort of d- diesel van familiarisation workshop. So uh, <laughs> in the meantime, I was being driven around by probationers at Moss Side, um, which was quite entertaining, <laughs> especially when we were driving down the, the red light district at Wally Range, and um, I, I spotted the sort of ladies of the night, shall I say, and uh, I said to the driver, oh, I said, just pull over, let's have, a, let's have a chat with this one. And you could see the sort of blood drain from this guy's face. He said, uh, he said, that's a prostitute. I went, ah, is it? I said, guess what? I said, we used to have them in London as well. So I said, pull over and start a chat to the uh, the Tom and uh, sort of. And I said to the, the, the professor, I said, you know, that is your richest source of information. I said, you look after them and they will give you little, little bits of snippets, you know, when they're not being sort of looked after by their sort of pimps or they're seeing things that are going on. I said, you know, that's where you're going to get your information from. So it's quite interesting. Uh, you know, you, you could take your experience and, and use it, but it was, it was just sad to see that uh, you know, they were sort of 10 years behind, you know, what I was used to in the Met, you know, with, with their sort of approach to things. But I eventually sort of got onto the firearms unit, albeit at Manchester Airport. But in the meantime, I'd applied to come back to the Met anyway because I'd had enough. <laughs> so that leads us back, you know, so we're looking at that period between 2002 and 2013, 11 years back in the Met, back in SO19 as one of the first direct entry officers back into firearms from GMP. And... I suppose when we look back on that period between 2002 and 2013 was an incredibly busy period over that decade for UK policing with the tragic circumstances around the 7-7 attacks in London, uh, the London Olympics, big events going on and then many challenges to face policing since then. What was that period like for you in those 11 years of responding to sort of the ever-growing demands and challenges of the UK obviously becoming a victim to global terrorism and, and obviously it being identified that we weren't immune from the threats which exist in, in a global society. What was that like from a policing perspective for you? Uh, it, was, it was a massive change in sort of the mindset and tactics. I mean, if you think you know, Mumbai uh, had occurred, uh, which changed sort of everyone's approach to sort of you know, how we deal with terrorists. So, you know, uh, I think the Met, um, we were one of the sort of forerunners of, you know, putting together the tactics of how, how you would combat suicide bombers and uh, and the like. Um, I remember being involved in a demonstration down at our firearms training centre down at Milton, where we were sort of, you know, um, show, showcasing that these new tactics that uh, have been put together for, you know, the chief constables and ACPO ranks. Uh, and, you know, they were, they were just completely shell-shocked. Um, by, you know, the, you know, the things you have to do, you know, taking that critical shot, uh, you know, which we now know is sort of um, one of the sort of uh, tactics we would use against a suicide bomber um, if it's been confirmed. Uh, but, you know, they were seeing this in action uh, and they were just gobsmacked, you know, that they would see this on mainland UK. Um, so that I think they went a bit, were a bit shocked at... Uh, at the, the new tactics that were being brought in. So, you know, we saw the, the changeover from that. Um, obviously, busy times, um, certainly within London, um, just with the gangland stuff. You know, I, mean, I became involved with a, a, a proactive unit, charge and proactive unit. We targeted the armed criminalities uh, around London, you know, the big gangs, uh, which again sort of opened up my eyes to some of the 
goings on, certainly with the Turkish sort of uh, uh, gangs in in North London and some of the sort of torture roses that you know we we dreaded on Green Lanes and whatever. You just think you you see it on films, but to actually see it in in person is just a it's another world. What was the impact that? Um... Because, you know, operations, you can put as much planning and preparation into operations as, as possible and you rely on the best intelligence that you can have to hand to be able to respond to um, perceived threats uh, and then often given directions and orders to isolate particular individuals. You know, you look at 2005, the incident with Jean-Charles de Menzies. What sort of impact did that have on firearms units uh, across London in terms of the sort of the fallout from that incident and, and, and the better understanding as to how we process intelligence, who we're dealing with, how we respond, and, 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 and often sometimes the criticism from a public that isn't aware of the information which is coming through, importantly. It was massive because obviously, you know, there's a big sort of narrative that, you know, uh, the police have shot an innocent man, um, you know, but I would sort of say to anyone, you know, you, you, you put yourself in the shoes of those officers who, who ran towards that suspected suicide bomber on the tube, um, knowing that he could detonate a bomb at any time, you know. So for them, it, I mean, what what was their sort of, you know, percentage of survival uh, when they were thinking, you know, running towards that tube uh, and and to do what they're trying to do? You know, this is, this, these are the tactics we, we spark about. Uh, these are the tactics that have been demonstrated to all the ACPO ranks. Uh, and I think from a, from our point of view, from within the firearms unit, it was very telling to see um, the support from certain elements of you know senior management and the lack of support from other elements. And certainly some of the government officials are coming out and uh, quite happy to throw people under the bus, you know. Uh, and, and we'll talk about um, Cressida as well, who, who made the decision you know, that, you know, to be in that position, to make that decision. Uh, and I know sort of there was mixed reviews, or mixed views about you know, her role, but you know, from a firearms point of view, she made that decision. Uh, and that's that's all you can ask for in, in that situation. Really. I mean, the last thing you want is someone hesitating because that can... That, I mean, if that had been a suicide bomber, as it was suspected, you imagine what the result would have been if police hadn't had taken action and that tube train was to sort of blow up and how many people were on that tube train, how many people would have been killed as a result of that. You know, I've been very lucky to to interview some incredible people and one of the couple and previous firearms officers, Simon Morgan, uh, um, Chris Donaldson um, and and Tony Long, just to to name a few. And, and, And what... What I've observed from from interviewing those three people and including yourself is that over the generations, firearms policing has become um, more accountable, probably rightly so, in terms of the use of lethal force and the accountability in terms of sort of the the threat assessments that we make and the decisions that we make within split seconds in terms of that threat that exists and how do you neutralise that and the perceived threat and, and then sort of the micro-analysis post-incident of people reviewing these um, and having the ability of having so much time to review them post-incident and come up with theories and analogies as to how things an incident in 2011 which led to significant public disorder as a result of that incident and and, an interaction with firearms police Um, and even you look at sort of 
uh, Tony's last incident and being charged um, with with the murder of um, that chap. What it appears to me that firearms policing has has it become harder? Has it become and, and is it, has it become harder? Rightly so, or is it? Is there a lot of pressure on officers in terms of if they do take the decision to end the life of another because of their perceived threat at the time? It must be running through their minds that this decision is probably going to affect my career for the next four or five years whilst it's analysed. Yeah, and the rest, I think. You know, I mean, if you if you speak to TL, I think you know one of his his last job was ten years. Uh, and, we, and we still got a colleague who's still going through the mill who was involved in a shooting eight years ago. So uh, uh, my, my concerns in relation to the where things have gone forward now, I mean, we've, we've got all the body-worn video, which, you know, pros and cons in relation to that, it's, it's one-dimensional. I mean, it gives you a good picture of what it's like to look from the officer's point of view from a certain angle, but it doesn't throw in the other sort of mitigating factors factors you, you would have present um you know so so the pros and cons and that and you're trying to work out what the mindset is of that officer at that particular time you know and with all of the police shootings you know it's got to be that decision that you know is an immediate threat to life uh, and you've got mm-hmm. to make that decision as you quite right said that can be a split second decision um, my concern is that with all the pressure that's going on at the moment, especially for my colleagues that are still serving, is that's going to bring in hesitation. Um, you know, are they going to be frightened of squeezing that trigger uh, because of, of what's gone before? Them? And as a result, someone may get sort of injured or, or fatally wounded. Uh, and that's, you know, how would you live with that? Now, owing to your sort of hesitation, someone died or, or even, you know, that per- the person who, who failed to act w- was killed. Do you think, would it be advantageous, I suppose reflecting on the most recent incident with police, um, and, and obviously this matter is still being investigated, and I think a file's just been handed up to the Crown Prosecution Service for a, a decision, I think, regards to Chris Carber. Um, there was a lot of tension in the communities in relation to that incident, and it was quite apparent that the family were invited in to view body-worn camera footage mm. of the incident so that that could hopefully appease concerns that this wasn't just police acting in a manner which was grossly inappropriate, obviously giving the family context around why decisions was, were made. Do you think there's an argument for us to be, for, for, for British policing, not just the Met, because I think this affects British policing totally. You look at the American model, the American model, they're very transparent in getting body-worn camera footage out quickly so that the public understand what officers were faced with. Now, there are some complexities around that in terms of investigations that go on, transparency. If something was to go to court, how would that affect, for instance, jurors and other bits and pieces? So, But, but, do you, but do you, was it a positive thing to see a move of the Met being transparent with the immediate family to appease any sort of unnecessary tensions or concerns that we didn't have a repeat of 2011 with the incredible scenes of public disorder across London and the UK? Well, I think that was evidenced by the changing narrative uh, once the family had seen the, uh, mm. the, the video footage. I mean, gone at the allegations of, you know, that we'd sort of, you know, deliberately murdered someone to, you know, change an attack on as to why, you know, police were there 
uh, as opposed to sort of their actions that they, they did at the time. So I, I think, yes, um, you know, putting the body-worn video footage out there as soon as, because you think, you know, the press are on it, uh, the, the media, mainstream media will, will put it out as quickly as possible. Um, so they've got that sort of good lead-up time, you know, months of sort of, you know, putting out all these accusations without any sort of uh, response from from the police. So, you know, by doing that, uh, we're stopping the, you know, the, the problems we saw in Tottenham following the Duggan shooting. So we talk about um, 2013, obviously, uh, is your sort of official retirement in uniform from policing. I think you took a period of retirement down to the coast, if I'm right in saying so, down to, am I right saying Devon? But um, you got itchy feet very, very quickly. And I think there was a, an essence of missing the role that you were previously in and then uh, and then took back up a civilian firearms instructor's role in 2016. Was that something that um, you enjoyed doing because it was something that you could get your teeth back into and have a have an impact in the next generation of firearms officers coming through? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in your blood. I, I mean, I, I didn't... When I say retired, I mean, I was a beach bum for two and a half years, and I've got a feeling it was my wife who actually put the phone call back into the Met to get them to drag <laughs> me back because she was fed up of tripping over me with my shreddies. I was out sat in my man cave. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I went back. But I, in the meantime, I've been working for the uh, Police Firearms Association, the, the police charity um, that was sort of you know, founded by you know, one of my colleagues on the AAVs, Matt Williams. And I became a well-being coach um, for the actual charity, uh, which really opened up my eyes, not only to the sort of level of um, mental health crisis that there was within sort of the Met firearms, but all across the country. Um, you know, there's colleagues up and down the country who were just sort of really struggling, um, you know, following being involved in incidents and, and just sort of general policing. Um, so really, when I went back, Yes, I wanted to get back into the sort of the firearms environment, you know, back into the sort of like, you know, like-minded individuals. I, I tried to engage with sort of members, of, you know, civilians when I was sort of retired, uh, but you just, you just couldn't have the same sort of conversation with them. You know, they wouldn't understand, um, you know, where you were coming from, you know. Um, so to go back into the fold um, was something I, I desperately needed. I didn't realise at the time how much I did miss it. Uh, it was only initially a one-year contract, um, so I thought I could go and do that for a year. Um, but, you know, the Met being the Met, they haven't really sort of worked out that they need quite a few firearms instructors to sort of, you know, train people. Um, so that one-year contract turned into a three-year contract, and then it turned into sort of like a permanent contract. But in the meantime, I'd gone back with this sort of idea of um, introducing a, a well-being sort of initiative within the firearms unit. Uh, and that was really the sort of um, the, the start of my uh, of setting up Trojan Wellbeing, uh, to be honest with you, uh, with the uh, initiatives we're putting in place and the differences we're making just by doing simple things. Um, but yeah, I enjoy being back back training without doubt. The one thing that I'm always um, intrigued by is that to get into these positions, armed response being one of them, as, as obviously we're talking about this evening, the main focus point, is that you often want the officers coming into those positions to have a good five, ten years of experience and a good grounding as understanding sort of 
not only the boroughs that exist within London, but understanding legislation, policy, policy and procedure, and equally having that teamwork, having all those skills really harnessed. And I, and I wonder, when you go back in in 2016 as a civilian firearms officer and you see nowadays the demand that's required for a significant increase um, in firearms officers around London because of the challenges in increased knife crime, the constant threat of terrorism, which is never going away, um, big, large public events, G20s and, and other you know issues. Is that experience where we want it to be? Is, it would appear to me that you know there are quite junior staff sitting in armed response vehicles in and around London, or are you... Would you say, listen, regardless of experience, they get trained to an incredibly high standard and they're prepared? Yeah, I mean, everyone receives the same training. Um, but we did see, uh, I wouldn't say a different breed of police officer coming through. I mean, what we started to see was before you know, the vast majority of people on, on 19 you know, had spent a minimum of five years on division uh, come through other sort of, you know, units such as, you know, the territorial support group, you know, which gave them a good ground as well. And also, you know, that teamwork, um, ethic. Um, and we started to see people turn up on courses where it was a case of, well, this week I'm going to apply for the firearms unit or next week I'll apply for traffic or it wasn't like, you know, I want to be in firearms. You know, you know when I applied, you know, the, the actual sort of number of people applying for firearms and it was, you know, couple of thousand but it was only you know, 200 places there so you know there's a huge sort of you know um, demand uh, or, or pressure uh, to, to get a place so you had to want to to be in the firearms unit whereas when they had the uplift it was a case of you know what do you want to do this week you know do you want to go on transport for London team or do you want to go to sort of our response vehicles you know there was no sort of you know building your career up towards you know, applying for the firearms unit, you know, everything you did with your annual sort of reports, you know, I want to I want to go towards firearms and, you know, you, you build up your sort of, your CV really to sort of make yourself appealing for the firearms unit. And I remember when I sat down and had my interview, uh, you know, <laughs> and I still see the guy now, Andy Latter was the, uh, the chief inspector, um, you know, and, you know, I'd done all, all with the sort of like bullying of the, the boots and the tunic and stuff. And uh, he looked at me and said, why are you not wearing a jumper? And you think, you know, and that was, that was the sort of thing, you know, and you, you knew that if you wanted to be in this unit, you know, you, you had to show that that's what you wanted to do. You know, it wasn't a case of, you know, I deserve to be in here because, you know, I, I, I passed my probation type stuff. Uh, and, and with that came, you know, when, when the pressure came on top of them what, during the training, there wasn't that desire to stay in the firearms. It wasn't that desire to push them through that sort of, you know, that mental resilience. We, we start to see the consequences of that now where you, you have a higher level of mental health sort of issues going on because they've not got that, that, that mental fitness um, because, you know, they came in unprepared. Uh, and, um, you know, even, on, even during the training, you know, they, they weren't prepared for the training. You know, when you're having to teach someone how to shout at someone uh, and, and do the confrontational stuff, I mean, so, some people turn up on the courses, I hadn't even been on a blue light run. Their mind sort of, you know, fighting or shouting at people, you know, you think. Uh, and to me, that was, the, the selection process needed to be more robust. I mean, I, I appreciate, you know, the pressure was on, on the sort of, you know, senior management to get bums on seats. You know, they had this sort of, you know, we need to get so many firearms officers because of the demand. But, you know, training 
and selection shouldn't have been sort of uh, affected. It should have remained at high standard. Can we? One of the one of the biggest challenges in the past couple of years for firearms teams, particularly in London, I suppose we'll focus on is has been morale in the sense of the firearms units, both at diplomatic protection and or PADP, as I think as it's, it's commonly known, has very much been under the microscope because of obviously the abhorrent acts and crimes committed by Carrick and Cousins. Many colleagues that work in these areas, how has that behaviour and the focus on their unit, an elite unit that looks after parliamentary and diplomatic buildings across London, really had a knock-on effect with morale? And was it a, a cultural issue that should have been identified a lot earlier? What, what's the sort of what's been going on behind the scenes to sort of address those challenges? There, there was a there was a massive problem um, in in the manner in which you know, those firearms departments were being treated by management, um, and, and this is this was something that we we flagged up or I specifically flagged up for people because one of the roles I performed when I was a firearms instructor I was responsible for the um, you know reauthorization of these firearms officers when they came every three months. Uh, and you could just see, you know, the way they were being treated. You know, they were being sort of given poor equipment. You know, they were having to fight for everything. Even the sort of firearms that were turned up were, were a poor standard. You know, held together with masking tape, and you know, you could see that they weren't being treated right. Uh, and I even highlighted that there was high levels of sort of you know stress because of the pressures being put on the people within those departments. You know, having the uh, Rest days cancelled. You know, working long long shifts, uh, and that's it. Not not being respected by management. So it's it's not it's no sort comes as no surprise that you know when when we hear of sort of people like cousins and Carrick, that you know these things are going on because you know there's no one there to sort of address those issues. There's no sort of morale. There's you know the the, the supervision uh, was was very poor. Uh, so you're not, you're not picking up those things, you know. You just sort of, you know, sending them out to do, you know, do the roles that they they perform, and not giving them the, the support that they need. So if anyone did flag up any any sort of concerns, they weren't being listened to because the pressure was to maintain certain levels within the, those groups because they were, they were understaffed at that particular time. But you know, having found out, you know, what what had gone on, I meaning like any any sort of serving and retired officer, I mean, it's just sort of, you know, devastating, really. You know, the reputation of the Met in particular has been completely destroyed um, by by what's gone on. I want to talk about sort of, you know, those pressures. Um, and, 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 and listen, I, I, I don't think those pressures are any excuse for either Carrick or Cousins. They are monsters of human beings and, 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 and abuse their positions and and deserve to be where they are for the remainder of their natural lives, without doubt. But there are colleagues in policing that do struggle with the pressures, do struggle with the challenges, and, and often, particularly in a firearms arena, worry about what will mean to them if they were to raise that they were having concerns or they weren't coping, because those tickets that they get in terms of those qualifications, which they renew regularly, um, could potentially well be taken off of them if they were to raise concerns or to flag up issues that they're having because everyone goes through challenges both professionally and personally you know life 
is often very complicated and when you add the pressures of shift work and the challenges of policing and and managing families and young children's and finances and cost of living police officers are no different they're human beings and they face the normal pressures that the rest of society do and i suppose your founding of Trojan Wellbeing and, and, and the sort of welfare aspect that you've recognised coming back in as, the, as a civilian firearms trainer and then taking on Trojan Wellbeing full time now outside of policing full stop is one of those go-to organisations that people can reach out to if they are struggling or they're going through maybe an internal process that they need some advice and guidance around or they, they need a shoulder to lean on or to, or to be able to vent in, in confidence the, the establishment of Trojan Wellbeing was is that your way of being able to give back or to provide additional support services that you recognise maybe that are missing in policing across the UK? Yeah, without doubt. I mean, I, I was constantly having conversations with you know commanders of, of firearms units in relation to how colleagues were being treated. You know, if they were to put up their hand and said, you know, I, I'm going through a bit of a tough time at the moment. Uh, you know, my mental health is is in a poor place. You know, the the instant knee-jerk reaction was, as you quite rightly say, was to take the firearms authority off them. They would then get sort of um, referred through to occupational health, and it was you know, six to eight months before that person would get their ticket back, having gone through all the hoops and hurdles to to, to sort of you know secure the, the firearms authority again. You know, what I tried to get across was sort of improving our mental health awareness. Is that, you know, there's, there's different ways of looking at this. And it was a bit of a lottery. Uh, I mean, it, you know, you mentioned, you know, Chris, Chris Donaldson, who was my, my sergeant on the ARBs. Uh, and I know Chris shares the, the, the same view. I mean, you know, we, we all know that people go through, you know, certain times where you know, they're just, they're just not in the right place. It might be sort of going through a griefy divorce family bereavement, you know, that, that sort of stuff that you go through. It might be just a temporary thing. And they just need to take the foot off the gas. So if, if you were to approach certain supervisors, you know, that supervisor would sort of give you that sort of period of reflection, uh, allow you to sort of naturally deal with whatever you're dealing with, you know, dealing with that trauma, you know, uh, teach the, the trauma risk management, you know, that four-week period where your body naturally deals with trauma uh, and you come out at the other side. Um, and they will allow you to do that. And you get that officer coming back, back onto full ops, and also well, they will do anything for that supervisor because they know they've supported them. Whereas you know, what was going on was you know, supervisors were, were, were frightened of supporting their colleague because if they had the message from above that anyone who's having sort of, you know, problems with mental health would take the ticket off them, they get mandatory referred through to occupational health. And then that's the end of that. So what was happening? That people weren't putting their hand up. People weren't coming forward saying, Do you know what, I'm struggling. You know, and I've dealt with so many colleagues who said to me, so I just cannot afford to, to sort of put my hand up and, and lose my firearms ticket. You know, I spoke to one colleague who not only was he supporting his own family, he was supporting his mum and dad as well. He said, if I lose my ticket, I'm going to lose that all the time. I mean, yeah, there's a number of issues uh, in relation to sort of living beyond your means, but is taking his ticket away going to improve his, his situation? I think it's going to make it a whole lot worse for him. So I just wanted sort of supervisors to be more aware of mental health and, you know, and things you can do to help that person as opposed to you know, increasing their anxiety.
Um, so you know, I've tried to bring in sort of mental health awareness training for all the supervisors uh, to improve their mental health literacy, but uh, it just fell on deaf ears, and it was like um, you know, I was I was constantly battling with people uh, regarding that. Yeah, and we're trying. We, you know, the, the force of saying the breaking down the stigma and discrimination around mental health, but you know when you still speak to colleagues or serving now, it's not changed that much in that period of time, unfortunately. Do you think that policing and senior management, because it's it's not something that we often hear, the SLT senior leadership teams across UK policing talk a lot about in terms of wanting to recognise and support the mental health of the troops on the front line, it almost seems to still be the elephant in the room. You know, it's got to be argued and agreed upon that, you know, it's we've certainly come a long way since the 70s, 80s and 90s in terms of recognising it's, it's, it's OK not to be OK. Um, but equally, supervisors almost not not knowing what conversations to have with someone if they turn up and say, listen, I'm not great today, I'm not feeling well mm. for these reasons, and them actually not having the skills or the abilities to be able to respond to, the, to respond to that effectively, which doesn't cause further harm or distress to the individual concerned. It's Because um, at the moment it seems to me that supervisors, superintendent, inspector and sergeant level are under so much pressure to have bums on seats, to respond to calls for service, to carry out investigations, that we can't afford to have people on sick leave. And if we do have people on protracted periods of sick leave, we start to question them why and we start to show cause them when we start to look at grievance processes and we start to go mm. down these really quite yucky routes which only complicate issues and add an extra layer of, of stress and, and anxiety on officers which, with some help and some support, could recover to be fully operational again. It's, 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 it's clearly the frontline supervision which seems to be sort of struggling with this a little bit? Yeah, well, I'd say that it's probably being unfair on the frontline supervision because that message is coming from somewhere. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and you do get the supervisors who do make that decision that I'm going to look after my colleague, you know, I'm going to make sure they're okay uh, and do that early intervention stuff. Uh, and it was just trying to get that consistency all across the board that, you know, if we were to step in early, you know, spot those early warning signs. You may prevent that officer going off long-term sick and then going through the, you know, the unsatisfactory performance procedure. And ultimately, that, that person is then going to leave the job. So we've lost an experienced officer because we didn't deal with them properly at the very beginning. You know, spending a, a couple of weeks looking after that officer's welfare <coughs> may save the officer leaving the job. But, you know, the way it is now... You know, they just don't know to do with it and that just sort of goes into a point where that officer goes off long-term sick and once they've gone off long-term sick you know the I think the percentage of them coming back into the job is very low isn't it you know so the retention is is very low so it's let's just get the the, the right training and that early intervention and give people the confidence just to have a conversation I mean nine times out of ten it's just sitting down having a brew with someone letting them know that you actually care about them you know that because it's a very sort of um, insular business, really, especially you know on the front line. You know the proper response work. You know you may be out single patrolled. Hardly ever see any of your colleagues because you've just gone from call to call to call. Where do you get? Where do you have your outlet? Where do you have your debrief? Where do you have that person sort of saying, "Are you okay?" I mean that was quite a nasty incident you dealt with there. You know, are you all right? Do you need to take top five? Do you want a brew? There's none of that anymore. 
And it's just that early intervention stuff. It's not, it's not rocket science. There's been a significant amount of pressure in the last two years for the government to recruit or uplift as they'd like to, um, for us to perceive that they've recruited additional 20,000 police officers across UK policing. When we, we, we know when you look back at 2011, 2012, those numbers were reduced by 20,000. I think we're actually only ahead by about 3,000. And when you look at retention, the amount of people leaving is probably no change has really been made in essence, um, tragically, because I think the, the, the greatest challenge at the moment is keeping people in policing and the retention is a massive issue um, uh, from, from, from a multiple different cohorts and demographics of people. With the pressure that the government and policing has been under to recruit, are we, you know, from a welfare perspective, are we recruiting the right people in terms of people having the right levels of resilience, understanding that the job is difficult and it does provide really dynamic challenges and it's not just a nine till five and that family life often revolves around the job you know, and that you, you know, you're going to have to maybe do some overtime and you're going to have to put in the hard yards. It, it, is, it, is it critically wrong of me to say that we, we seem to be recruiting the wrong type of people for a, for a job which is bloody difficult? Well, I mean, I, I question the, the re resiliency training that uh, the new recruits receive. And actually put um, an offer in to sort of go and do sort of mental resiliency training for the new recruits. Uh, but I was informed that the College of Police had already had their programme in place and uh, you know, the recruits were adequately being looked after, which, you know, the, the figures speak for themselves. As you say, you know, the poor retention of, of recruits staying in the job once they realise, you know, that it's not, as it says in the brochure, you know, you, Speaking to colleagues, you, you were having people turn up at stations who weren't aware you did night duty um, and work the weekends. You know, I think, well, what sort of story or what information are they being given whilst they're going through their initial training? Uh, you know, and, and does that bring into question uh, what that initial training is? Because, you know, when we did our training, uh, we had exposure to sort of working at, at the police stations before we completed our training. You know, are they just being parachuted in without that exposure uh, and just being thrown at the deep end? You know, we, you know, we the sort of stresses that officers are under to try and complete the degree whilst doing policing, you know. And, and I, I, I don't know if they would find the time to do it if, if the demand is such. I mean, where do you find the, the time to do a degree in that time as well? It's, uh, it's unbelievable. But, yeah. Uh, this again, selection process needs to be looked at. Needs to be robust. I mean, there's a lot of talk around vetting, you know, making sure we're getting the right people in with you know the right background. But also, it needs to be sort of mental fitness as well. What mental resilience have they got coming into the job, and are they prepared for what they're going to be facing? And I think a lot of people um, should be held accountable for exposing these people to to the trauma that they're being exposed to and causing them long-term damage. It's an interesting one because, and I don't know if I'm drawing the the right um, association here, but when you look at the military as an example, you look at raw marines, and you, and you know you see the adverts that come out. Ninety nine point nine percent people need not apply, and and the training that they go through, and the discipline that they go through, and the expectations placed them. Now, obviously, and I, and I take the point that raw marines we're training 
people to go to war and, and to fight and and, and even those and, and, and even those individuals aren't bulletproof from the effects of mental health and and we've seen that from the theatres of war in the last decade the the ramifications and the and the psychological injuries to soldiers but equally when you look at what they've been faced with um in the theatre of war on the front lines of afghanistan iraq and other places like unbelievable challenges you know seeing their buddies shot and killed and, and blown up is horrific and I, I can't imagine for one second what that must be like but you look at the training that those soldiers go through to prepare them for those types of missions and those deployments and when you look at sort of how we train our police officers and when you look at London and you see scenes at the end of Notting Hill Carnival of young men running through the streets holding combat knives and machetes these scenes aren't too dissimilar to what I would perceive to happen on a battlefield in terms of the significant injury and trauma that could be caused. Yet our officers don't seem to receive the same level of discipline and, and resilience training and sort of, I don't know, the, the expectations seem to be completely different. And I wonder, because we've come so far and we, we're placing an awful lot of emphasis on academia rather than one's ability to cope in a dynamic situation and have resilience, we, 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 we're breeding a different type of police officer. Mm. Is that a fair comment? Uh, yeah, and I think it's all, all down to sort of the the information that they're being fed that sort of attracting them into the job. You know, there's there's this demand to get people into the job, uh, and you know they talk about being inclusive, diversity, and all the other bits and pieces, but they're not actually talking about what actually is important. Uh, it doesn't matter what colour you are, uh, you know, coming into the job, you need to have that mental resilience, you need to be prepared for what the job is going to throw at you and what you're going to be exposed to. Uh, and I, I suppose it's a bit like being a, 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 a hypnotist, really. Most of the work is done in the preamble. Mm. You, know, you hypnotise people just as a lead-up to the actual technique you use, and it's the words you use that prepare that person to be hypnotised. And it's the same with policing. You know, before it was, you know, this is a tough job. You're, you're going to get tough training. You're going to be fit. You're going to, uh, and you're going to be able to face what what you what's going to go on out on the streets. Now, it's it's more the softly softly approach because they want to encourage people to join the job. You're going to get looked after and all the other bits and pieces, and it and it's just not the, not the case. So people are coming in and, and they're being shell shocked because they're being fed a lie as to what the job actually entails. You know, to have people say, I didn't realise you did night duty. I mean, where does that come from? You know, and and people being picked up because they don't want to stand on the scenes of sort of you know, sudden deaths or suicides by the parents. I mean, how, how has that been allowed to happen? I mean, at what stage does that officer think, you know, this is acceptable as a police officer that, you know, I can, all, I can pick and choose what jobs I go to, <laughs> you know? If, if you want to do that, go and do a nine-to-five job, you know, because it doesn't matter what shift you go on. You, when you come on duty, you just never know what you're going to be dealing with that day. And that was the appeal of the job, that variety. But no, it's like, you know, I want to do certain things. I don't want to do other things. I mean, you can't have that choice in this role, unfortunately. It's... um. 
it's something I think you and I could talk about um, mm -hmm. for some time. But I want to move on importantly to the role of Trojan Wellbeing and the support you provide, the services you provide from the oxygen therapy, which I'm really keen to hear about, and uh, the other services. So, listen, can you give us a bit of a breakdown as to sort of the services that Trojan Wellbeing provides along with the mental health training and the resilience training and, and the therapies for people that are having a tough time? Well, I think uh, predominantly Trojan Wellbeing were, were an independent peer support group because, uh, as, we, as we discussed earlier, one of the main hurdles that people had was um, you know, if they were going to put their hand up and say, you know, do you know what, I'm struggling with my mental health, it was going to have an impact on their career. So I wanted to create that safe environment where people could sort of have a conversation. Uh, and, and with peer support, I mean, it's being recognised that that is one of the, you know, the most effective coping mechanisms available to actually sit down and chat with someone who's got lived experience because there's that understanding um, you know, so you make that connection. So when you chat to someone and that, and you know that person knows what it's like to do a late and a Sunday, you know, it's domestic violence sort of uh, shift, you know already, you know all that stuff. So you don't have to explain what the role is. You know, they understand. And, and that's where you have the connection. Um, so offering that peer support, I mean, you know, um, I mentioned to you earlier, but, you know, one of our most proactive groups at the moment is our misconduct to peer support group. And this, these are all officers who are all facing investigations uh, and they're, they're reaching out because they've just got nowhere else to turn to because, you know, they've been dropped like a hot potato by their colleagues because their colleagues are frightened to talk to them that they might get dragged into the investigation. Uh, the Federation are overwhelmed by the, 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 the workload. You know, the, the Fed reps are inundated with the number of cases that they're dealing with that they can't give them at the time. So they just don't know where to turn to. So we provided that sort of support for them. And just listening to some of those stories, you know, it's, it's horrendous. You know, I was chatting to a dog handler the other day. Uh, and, you know, they're facing a gross misconduct investigation because the dog bit someone that ran away from police. Now, uh, I'm sure that, you know, that was part of the role of the police dog. If you're going to run away from police and the dog sort of set loose, there's a strong possibility if you keep running and don't comply with the police officer, the dog's going to bite you. So the dog's done its job and, and now, now she's facing gross misconduct. And you think, oh, why has it come to this? So, you know, there's a lot of disillusioned, experienced officers out there. But we put them into a peer support group where they're able to talk to other people in similar situations so they know that they're not on their own because it's quite a lonely place when you're the subject of that investigation. So that is our sort of main business. But what I was keen to do was have the infrastructure. It's all right sort of, you know, providing that support. And, and there's that, that saying, if you go hunting for tigers, don't be surprised if you find one. So if we find a target, what are we going to do with them? So we actually found counsellors and therapists who come from an emergency services or military background. So again, you've got that connection. Uh, and, they're, and they're providing that support for that officer. If they need professional support, not everyone does, because as I said, the vast majority of people will respond well to having a sit down and a brew with someone and just someone listening and valuing what they're saying, because it's probably the first time someone's actually listened to them and actually sort of valued what they said. 
But you know, there's going to be that odd occasion where you know that that person needs professional help. You know, we're not here to sort of, you know, diagnose people. We're not sort of clinical professionals and we've got to work within our capabilities. So we will signpost them to the professional help. And we built up a, a fantastic network of professionals around the country and a wide variety of sort of um, specialities as well, because it's not a one size fits all thing, you know. Most, some people will respond well to CBT, for example. Others won't respond well to it. Um, others will enjoy EMDR. Uh, others don't get on with it. And we've got hypnotherapists. We've even got these sort of you know, specialist trauma counsellors. We've even got counsellors who can look after children from the age of four years upwards because we forget about the family in the background who deal with Mr. or Mrs. Angry when they're coming home after the end of the shift. You know, they absorb trauma as well. And where's their outlet? You know, especially if you're dealing with someone who works in a specialist department, you know, they can't go and ch chat to their mate about, oh, yeah, Johnny was involved in a incident where they've been doing a surveillance job for the last six months and it's really impacted. They can't go and talk to the mate. So they absorb that trauma. They've got no one to speak to. So we provide support for families as well. And it's just growing from that. Um, as I said, you know, the mental health first aid training that we provide is, is, is bespoke because it's, it's being targeted at colleagues and family members uh, and you're coming from that position of lived experience. So, you know, they, they can make that connection with the instructor and you can actually make it relevant for what they're going through as opposed to just a, a generic course about mental health. Um, it, uh, and looking at other sort of um, therapies as well, uh, I became interested in, you know, you mentioned the hyperbaric oxygen therapy. We were just looking at other things that, all, that were out there. Uh, and I became sort of aware of um, this therapy in the States that was being used for the military veterans out there, especially those with diagnosed with PTSD. And it was having a massive sort of you know, effect on them, you know, having some fantastic results. And I thought, this is something that we need to tap into. Um, so I did a bit more research on the matter, uh, and then we've just opened up our own sort of clinic where we're offering sort of you know the hyperbaric oxygen therapy, you know, and we found that not only does it do PTSD and complex PTSD, but a whole host of different sort of you know conditions, you know from stroke victims, you know physical injuries, you know recovery from physical injuries because you know if you're injured and you can't do you, your job. It impacts your mental health. You know, if you think I'm not going to be operational again because of what's happened at work, that's going to impact your mental health. So we can sort of help people with that. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's just going from strength to strength in relation to that. We do the mental fitness sort of workshops where, you know, we get people in and we talk about mental fitness and a lot of them are surprised at their levels of stress. They don't realise how stressed they are because we're just so used to suppressing it. We don't realise that, you know, how much stress and the likelihood of us developing PTSD or other stress-related injuries if we don't do something about it. And it can be just simple things like just changing sort of lifestyle, you know, getting out doing those physical activities, you know, getting out socialising, making sure you've got a good support network and, and chatting to the, the peer support members as well, just offloading and realising that it's quite normal, the reactions that you're, you're having because of your um, exposure to trauma. It's interesting because, you know, when I, when I was going through the sort of junior ranks in policing, I 
we'd have sort of good banter and we'd be able to have sort of conversations and you know we, I think we often call it the sort of dark humor that we all have to try and get us through often sort of difficult situations or sort of you know sudden deaths were, were a classic or, or, or a suicide which is often confronting with, with the types of scenes that we'd go to and, and obviously we'd you know say things to sort of allow our bodies to process what we were going through and 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 for the occasional person that didn't cope with that they were just displaying sort of normal human emotions and and just not able to sort of block out all this or compartmentalize all the sort of the bad stuff and, and i must admit you when you when you walk around london now and you see a carrier full of guys and girls everyone's heads are buried in their phones because i fear we're, we're almost too scared to talk to each other because we we don't know how what we're going to say might be interpreted because you know and we we seem to keep everything to ourselves and and one of the beauties i think of trojan well-being and the groups which i'm i'm honored to to be in a couple of them and to witness some of the things that people are going through is it is it is that safe space you know for sort of difficult and sort of courageous conversations for people to put their hands up and say i'm not feeling 100% this is what i've gone through is anybody able to, as you as you quite rightly put it, just have have a catch up and sit down for a brew? And what's impressed me so much is that it doesn't matter where somebody is geographically located in the UK. Is the minute somebody's hand goes up or they pop the flare and they need some support, the the speed at which people within the group are willing to react and respond and to meet with or talk with over the phone, a variety of different people who they may not have ever met before. But equally, you know, once you're part of that sort of thin blue line sort of family, which, you know, never, never goes away, um, you know, the, the empathy and the, the understanding of what someone's going through and just to help them recognize that this is all normal stuff you're going through. Mm. You know, you may just need a little bit more help sort of steering the ship through these sort of turbulent waters that you're, you're currently going through. One of the biggest issues is that, that obviously organizations like Trojan Wellbeing faces along with others is funding and and. I wanted to understand sort of how you attract and how you're able to do what you do and, and, and what people that are listening to this podcast can do to, to help you in terms of making sure this cause can go further and wider. Well, on that note, we're now looking at sort of transitioning to charity status because, you know, we're knocking on a lot of doors to try and get the funding for what we're doing. Um, uh, and you know they, they were being firmly closed in our affairs because you know it was initially set up as a, a limited company because my original idea was to provide mental health first aid training, um, but it, you know it's evolved from you know, that initial thought over two years ago to now you know we find ourselves providing a number of different sort of um, services you know from the peer support so people you know popping around to see people so you know we need to try and fund that. Um, you know, funding these workshops and different workshops over different themes, you know, sleep workshops, menopause workshops. We even got a neurodiversity support group as well, which again has opened up my eyes to some of the, you know, um, difficulties uh, colleagues are having because of their sort of diagnosis or even looking after children with the, those conditions. So, you know, again, you know, trying to support people like that. Um, so yeah, we're looking at sort of becoming a, a charity. So there'll be sort of quite a bit of activity in relation to um, what we're doing 
uh, over the next couple of months. 2024 will be our main sort of um, springboard for the, the charity side of things. But in the meantime, we're still sort of supporting people. I mean, at the moment, we're funding a, a, a chamber for a, a, a military veteran who's got a traumatic brain injury. Uh, you know, and there, there was a, a, a just given page set up to try and raise funds uh, to, to support that. We've got a number of different initiatives ongoing where people can donate to. We've got a guy cycling around the UK um, who's raising awareness for PTSD, but he's also sort of donating money towards Trojan wellbeing and helping you know, the people that we're, we're trying to sort of support. So we're, we're gradually getting there. You know, the word is, is getting out there and podcasts such as this will only help to increase that awareness and get people talking. Uh, but more importantly, know that there is support out there. That, that's the main thing is that you know people know they've got options um, because you know we, we don't want to hear about our colleagues taking their own life because they, they fear they've got no other options. Uh, we want to be able to give people those options, and and I and I th- and I think people need to to understand and to to hear the fact that we do lose colleagues fairly too regularly to taking their own lives because they see no other way out of dealing with the with the with the the challenges that they're faced with, and and that leaves behind families, children, colleagues, mm-hmm. and peers that are dreadfully affected by the by the fact that a they didn't see the signs didn't know maybe how to respond um and uh, are left wondering what they could have done to sort of change the direction of of someone's thinking but it it goes to the point of how critically important organizations like trojan Wellbeing are in terms of providing what is critically a safe space for people to be able to talk confidently and openly with peers who understand the challenges understand the dynamics and recognize maybe what needs to be done and and may have lived similar experiences and and found pathways which have allowed them to get back to full capacity again you know some people recognize that you know policing maybe isn't for them and that you know through having those conversations with colleagues you know that say to them listen should we look at different opportunities out there for you know i've got a couple of people out of the group that i i chat to regularly about opportunities outside of policing and there are a number of organizations um andy lebrum has you know uh, is another one who champions mm-hmm. people's preparation in leaving policing after 30 years because equally that's not an easy transition to make for everybody because it's you know you're part of an organization for 30 years where do you fit in society on civvy street and where can i take all these unique skills and how am i employable i haven't had to write a cv for 30 years i haven't had to worry about it. so critically important but um I will continue to shout from the rooftops in terms of the podcast and giving Trojan Wellbeing the platform it deserves in terms of recognising and people understanding its existence. So, listen, Lobby, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast this evening. It's been an hour and 23 minutes of, um, of, of, of great conversation, you know, about your career in British policing, your role on the front line in firearms, some of the challenges, difficulties around that, and, and equally... Uh, the challenges that that police officers face and and how organisations like Trojan Wellbeing and others can support people in in, in getting through some of those darker times. So thanks for coming on the podcast. um, Thanks for inviting me, Matt. It's uh, been a pleasure. We wish you all the best and we'll speak soon. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. 
This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.